0: Inappropriate for me not to do this for you, because that was the sign by which the priests blessed the people, and my background is the Kohanim, so... I'm sure many of us have been to a state fair, or perhaps several, in our lives. In fact, you may have even taken your kids to the Florida State Fair, like we used to do. In which case, you may well have heard something like this. Step right up. Try your luck. Spin the wheel. Win big prizes. How about you? Step right up. Take a chance. What do you have to lose? It's all a game. Today may be your lucky day. Give your luck a try. Spin the wheel. Step right up. Take a chance. In fact, because of the closeness of the holiday, the Barker may well have even added something like this. Try the luck of the Irish. Same calendar? Okay. Now, that should raise a question. What does any of this have to do with Purim? Well, Purim breeds, literally, a strong carnival atmosphere. It's even traditionally celebrated in many circles with a Purim carnival, complete with all kinds of fun games, games of skill, games of chance. Furthermore, the whole story, or the scroll of Esther, which we've brought to the front here, seems to occur in a carnival-like atmosphere. It seems unreal and upside down. That's become more real in some circles of TV watching. If you're not familiar with that connection, don't worry about it. Just leave it as a picture. Unreal, upside down and very random. Its very name, Purim, from Pur, means lots. Or um, in the alternate, alternate Bible at the end of your pews, the living scriptures, it simply translates it as dice. In other words, it implies chance. And the scroll, in fact, records some very odd events. A king getting drunk in public. A queen refusing to order, refusing rather, the order of the king. A king deposing his uh, very beautiful queen. Something unusual is happening here. And what did Haman have to say about all of this as you read between the lines? His response would be chance, pure chance. Everything happens by chance. And now some four years later, after searching for a new queen to replace Vashti, King Verosh, a lot easier to say from the Jewish way than Ahasuerus, which is the English way, so Verosh. okay? Well, what does he do? He chooses Esther. She's a woman who does not reveal her nationality or heritage to the king. Now, would a king ever choose a woman as queen who hides her identity from him? Never. But Ahashverosh did. Very strange. But not to Haman. Just another chance happening. Mordecai, the leader of the Jews in exile, was sitting at the gates of the palace when he just happened to overhear a plot to kill the king. So, he reported the culprits to the authorities. He was not rewarded for this. Rather, the event was merely recorded in the king's diary or annals. A man who saves a king's life, not rewarded? Bad luck for him. That's what Haman would say. It's just a matter of chance. Now, in order to understand all of this, it's important to take another look at the scroll of Esther. Perhaps the theme of the fascinating story might be a state of affairs in which everything is topsy-turvy, the exact opposite or very very antithesis of what it appears to be, upside down and chaotic. And so we have King Ahasuerus, who's robed in his royal robes. I know that's somewhat redundant, but it happens to be good Hebrew. He's wielding his, I almost said magic scepter. Boy, Harry Potter's gotten into me. Uh, That's okay. He's uh, wielding his majestic scepter in the manner of an omnipotent oriental emperor. That's not easy to say quickly, I just discovered. But in reality, what is he? He's a vacillating weakling. He's maneuvered and manipulated by those around him. Haman is painted as the arch-villain destroyer of Jewish people in Persia. But in reality, it is Haman who reminds the Jews, including Mordecai and Esther, that they are Jews and are not Persians. Apparently, Esther has the Persian name of the pagan goddess Astarte. She lives as the queen of a Persian king and attempts to hide her Jewish identity. But when the chips are down, she is in fact Hadassah who reveals her hidden identity and even puts her life on the line to save her people. Mordecai's name sounds an awful lot like the Persian god Marduk, and he spends his days as an advisor to the Persian king. But his deep Jewish commitment emerges when he risks his career and even his, even his life by refusing to bow down before the chief advisor to the king, Haman. And, It's precisely when Haman appears to be at the very height of his influence and prestige that Queen Esther invites him to the party for Ahasuerus. And he even celebrates this by preparing a tree on which to hang Mordecai. And on that very same night, an insomniac king finally remembers that Mordecai must be honored for having saved his life. And so, Haman's luck seems to have run out, or begins to run out. In fact, the tree that uh, was prepared for Mordecai ended up being the executing agent for Haman himself. So, the events we are witnessing in this scroll are very different from what they seem to be. There is something behind the curtains, behind the chaos and the randomness. In a very real way. But most astonishing of all is God himself. Whose name does not appear, as I remind you from time to time, does not appear even once in the entire scroll of Esther. Esther. The name sounds very much like Esther. Which is Hebrew for hidden. And so he appears to be hidden. However, as the miracle story arrives at its climax, the discerning reader clearly understands That there is an invisible finger of God, so to speak, that has directed the entire drama from behind the curtains. And I use the term finger of God in this case instead of hand of God, which is just as appropriate. Because finger of God reminds us of the God who actually etched the ten words that we've been reading about over the past several weeks on those stone tablets. And the finger of God is a phrase that Yeshua the Messiah himself used to make a direct connection of himself with the one who wrote those commandments. So yes, the finger of God behind the scene directing the entire drama from behind the curtains. Directing it from the beginning with the rather convenient disappearance of Vashti to make room for Esther and concluding with Ahasverosh mistaking Haman's begging and bowing before Esther as sexual advances. Nothing in this world of appearances is as it appears to be. And so it's critical, it's crucial that we look behind and within what's in the scroll in order to perceive the true reality that is beyond the surface appearances. In other words, to perceive the order behind the chaos. Now, in a striking way, the Book of Esther mirrors the upside-down, topsy-turvy world of exile I mean, look, Israel's destiny is governed by an emperor who is more klutz than king, is threatened by a villain who really belongs in vaudeville, and is saved through the charms of a secret young Jew, a gal who just happens to be queen. Such oddities led the Jewish sages of old to ask, So where is Esther mentioned in the Torah? Why would they ask that question? Because someone so significant in our history should be somehow prefigured in the Torah. Their answer is striking. It comes near the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. It's in the phrase, I will surely hide my face. Hebrew, hasteir, astir, panai. And you can hear her name resonating there. I will hide my face on that day. So Esther's very name reminds us of Hester Panim, the hiding of God's face. And her story unfolds in a day when God, for all practical purposes, seems hidden. Because remember, he's not mentioned in the scroll. When the king issues an irreversible decree that all Jews in his empire are to be destroyed. Quick aside, a bit of history and a bit of geography. All Jews in his kingdom, in his empire. How many Jews would that have been? Persian Empire? All Jews. Because there were no Jews outside of his empire. I don't know if you had realized that before, but just be aware of that. Okay. Where was I? Okay. All Jews in his empire are to be destroyed. There is no divine intervention. There is no divine spokesman in the person of a great prophet or sage. Only Cousin Mordecai. But wow, what a Cousin Mordecai. Who tells Esther that she must do something. And Esther does the right something, which saves her people. Among the many lessons of Purim, therefore, are those it gives for us, for us, for the times when God seems to be absent. As the old song goes, He may be late, but He's always right on time. Conversely, God may be on the way, but He hasn't showed up. Yet. So, what are we to do in the meantime? Easy answer follow Esther's example. First, Esther does not give in to fear. Now, look, fear tempts us in two opposite but equally fruitless directions. We either freeze and do nothing, or we panic and do everything. Well, not quite everything. Do something crazy. It's not hard to imagine the queen hiding in her chambers, waiting for someone else, any someone else, to do something. After all, look what happened to Esther's predecessor, Vashti, when she took decisive action. She was, de- she was deposed and disposed of. Well, Esther recognizes this danger, but she is not intimidated. She avoids the extremes of both freezing and of panic. Instead, she organizes three days of prayer and fasting back up the steps she must take. Which he describes this way. And so I will go to the king. Which is against the law. And if I perish. I perish. That's nice old English. But it still flows very nicely. You see. Ultimately it's a matter of perspective. And as we all know perspective. Is absolutely essential. Now a month earlier. Shmuley had a bad car accident. Involving a rather large truck. Weeks later, in court, the, truck, the trucking company's well-paid attorney was, was questioning Shmuley. Didn't you say at the scene of the accident, I'm fine? Asked the lawyer. Shmuley responded, Well, I tell you what happened. I just put my dog Moishala into the... I didn't ask for any details, the attorney interrupted. Just answer the question, did you not say... At the scene of the accident, I'm fine. Shmueli said, Well, I just got into the car and was driving down the road. At which point the attorney interrupted again and said, Judge, I'm trying to establish the fact that at the scene of the accident, this man told the highway patrolman that he was just fine. Now, several weeks after the accident, he's trying to sue my client. I believe he's a fraud. Please tell him to just answer the question. However, by this time, the judge was quite interested in Shmuley's story and said to the lawyer, I'd like to hear what he has to say. Shmuley thanked the judge and proceeded. Well, like I was saying, I just loaded Moishele into the car and was driving him down the highway when this huge truck ran the stop sign and smacked my car right in the side. I was thrown into one ditch and Moishala was thrown into the other. I was hurting real bad and couldn't move. I heard Moishala moaning and groaning and groaning and moaning. I knew he was in terrible shape. Just then, a highway patrolman came along. We could hear Moishala groaning and moaning and moaning and groaning. So he we went over to him. After he looked at him and saw what terrible condition Moshele was in, he took out his gun and he shoots him. Then the patrolman comes across the road with his gun in his hand. He looks at me and says, so how are you feeling? No, judge. What would you say? Well, Esther knew what had happened to Vashti. But she still said, I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. And she said this despite the fact, quite shockingly, that God seems nowhere to be found in the book of Esther. He simply does not appear. He is never mentioned. And as I've reminded you from time to time, even though there is no express mention or reference to God in Esther, he is clearly, even pervasively present. His absence tells us that he works even when he is not recognized to be acting. Through the natural course of human events, through the actions of his people, God providentially preserves his people. He does it without a miraculous intervention or by a big dramatic display. In other words, he works behind the scenes quietly, without violating anyone's free will. Interestingly enough, this becomes a pattern for God working throughout history, where it perhaps may, let me change that. It doesn't become a pattern. It illustrates once again the pattern for God working throughout history. The name of God, however, does appear hidden. Remember, Esther, as the name implies, hidden. In the book of Esther, He's definitely there behind the scenes. You see as it turns out there are 5 places in the book where God's name appears acrostically. In 4 places the what is often called the sacred name of God the tetragrammaton or the yod he vav is formed by 4 Hebrew letters appearing in 4 consecutive words. Another acrostic contains the phrase Eyeh. part of the phrase ehyeh asher ehyeh where God is describing himself often translated I am but as we better understand it, I will go with you. But here again is another name of God. It is the same name that God stressed in the burning bush story in Exodus chapter 3. And then each column of the Megillah, except the first, starts with the Hebrew word ha-melech. Hebrew students? The king. Right. In other words, It's designating God as sovereign even though not seen. Now, these, shall we call them, hidden references to God indicate God's secret workings. So the non-mention of God's name does not negate his activity, but instead emphasizes it as is made clear by the book of Esther. And so so we heard it read at the very end of the book of Esther. Celebrate the feasting, gladness, and the giving of gifts, these historic days. Historic days, because God was acting behind the scenes. When the Jews were saved from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned to gladness, and their mourning into happiness. You'll recognize that phrase from elsewhere as well. So celebrate it as a reminder of the time when Haman, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted to destroy them, at the time determined by a throw of the dice. And to remind them that the king issued a decree causing Haman's plot to boomerang. And he and his sons were hanged on the gallows. It reminds me of a principle that was already in place that we should know about because we have heard it already. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. When Joseph addresses his brothers and says, That which you intended for bad God turned into good. In other words, God is the one who turns curses into blessings. And interestingly enough, even the very name of Purim reflects this very idea also. Because the casting of the dice produced the date for the decree for the extermination of the Jews. But in fact, the dice were flipped. And that's not what happened. And so we celebrate, if you would have it, the flipping of the dice. After all, remember what God had promised. Exodus 33:14. He said to Moses, I will go with you. I will go before you. At the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, in that same chapter that I referenced before, relating to the name of Esther appearing, God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then in the very next book, just to make sure we get it, Joshua chapter 1, we're reminded, or Joshua's reminded, take courage, for the Lord your God goes with you wherever you go. Oh, and by the way, in Messiah Yeshua, we too can discover that when we do what we can do, even though we may feel powerless, his power and his spirit will be at work in us. We return then once again to the words of the great Rabbi Rav Shaul. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4. God may be delayed. He may be hidden by circumstances and seemingly away on other business. But his presence becomes evident As we do what we are assigned to do. And because of this, and based on the clear evidence of the book of Esther and that story there, we can confidently and wholeheartedly respond, even when he is hidden and seems absent. And in fact, this is why we can regularly respond as we did this evening. We thank you for you, O Lord our God, paragraph 6 of the Amidah. You are our ancestors, God, for all eternity. You are our rock, our shield that saves through every generation. That includes ours. So we trust our lives into your loving hands. We are always in your keeping. Your wonders and miracles are with us daily, evening, morning, noon. Oh, you who are all good, whose mercies never fail us, compassionate one whose faithful love never ceases, we ever hope in you. You are the God of salvation and deliverance. Blessed are you, O Lord, whose name is good and to whom it is pleasant to give thanks. And so, we have the opportunity to follow the example of the Purim heroes, Mordecai and Esther. And we can say, as our ancestors did, everything you have told us, Lord, Exodus 19:8, we will do. And we too, then, can become heroes at Purim. So I say to you, in anticipation of the holiday, Hag Purim Sameach. Take to heart the examples of the heroes and become one yourself. Take a minute or so in quiet to reflect and respond.